Uh, let me give you a little sampling of some of the signs from the Chicago Marathon. Let's see. Uh, my personal favorite, never trust a fart after mile 20. Yep. <laughs> uh, due to inflation, this race, you will now have to run 27.5 miles. <laughs> uh, let's see. Right? You run better than the government. That's good. <laughs> Just a little sampling for you, Those Ted. Good. The hollow buddy. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Hollow Bunny Leadership Podcast. I'm Kristen Zeman, and I'm here with my co-host, Sylvia Moyer, and our producer is going to hang out today, Ted Madden. Uh, Syl and I are former police chiefs, but this podcast is not just for cops. Actually, it's for everyone. It's for anyone who has an interest in talking about life and leadership or um, vulgar things like we typically do. Uh, but <laughs> uh, the hollow bunny, if uh, for those of who don't know what the hollow bunny is, it's it's what we call kind of the empty suit. It's bad leadership. And the other day I stumbled across a couple words that I thought fit the hollow bunny and I text it to my comrades here. Hollow bunny, arrogance, arrogance mixed with incompetence. I thought that was like I thought that was a, a bullseye on what what the hollow bunny is. That is a that is a bullseye because really how the hollow bunny came out into to see the light of day and be really descriptive is, you know, Kristen, when we were talking about someone who gets all these accolades and get all these gets all these opportunities and this this beautiful shiny package and just like the Easter bunny, the chocolate bunny that you see on a shelf at Easter and the package is great and you're all excited about it and the foil and the cute little bow tie and then you take off the foil. And like we've talked about before, I am a lady, so I break off the ear. And you, Kristen Zeman, are an ultimate lady, and you do what? I bite that butt. I bite the bunny's butt. That's where I start. It is not unladylike to be a butt biter of Ted. We've never asked you. We've never asked you when you eat a Easter bunny. What do you? Where do you begin? I would. I would like to answer some way funny, but I just would start with the ear. Uh, yeah. it'd be like, oh, it'd be like you biting the bunny is like starting a grilled cheese that's cut in diagonals is starting in the middle and that's just messy. Yeah. So you start at one end and work your way up and it just doesn't make sense to start with a foot. Oh my God. I go right for the middle in a grilled cheese sandwich cut in triangles. That's like my so, five-year-old. Yeah. Okay. Well yeah. that tracks. Uh-huh. <laughs> that, that, that's tracking. And then Kristen's okay getting the little cheese on the sides of her mouth, like right in the middle. You and I are very orderly mm-hmm. uh, from the corner in. Yeah. yeah. Now how do I'm you going eat, in. How do you eat an apple? Mm, I just, uh, well, <laughs> I actually cut it in slices. <laughs> okay. I do that too. But if you, if you okay. were to eat one whole. Yeah. Uh, would... Right in the middle. Right. Boom. Right in the so middle. Just, you... and then I go around and then I go around the middle okay. and then I go, and then I go to the sides. I got, that's what I, I could do the middle first and then the ends. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I've some, seen some people do like, like a corn, corn on the cob. They'll go bang, 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 and then rotate the apple and go three more bites and do it wow. that way, which is weird. I thought you might do that. You know, what's beautiful is there's no wrong answer here. No, right? I mean, like, you, if it gets in your stomach, you won. It's, yeah. It's this whole thing in leadership preference and principle, right? That, 
that we learned at Sargent's Ted. It is, you know, the, the principles that unyielding truth standard, the preference is how you get there. It's your style, it's, in, it's flexible, but there are principles, right? And what happens is we as leaders have our credibility completely eroded when we impart our preference as if it's a principle. Oh, right. Still, yeah. I love that. I the, love that. The other lesson here is what you just reminded me is that how many times in your careers has someone, a superior, told you a way to do something because it's their way? It's yeah. or it's the way Perfect. they've always done it, right? And that Perfect. happened to me, yeah, early in just when I was a recruit with my field training officer, where I was like, well, wait a minute, how I'm doing it, I get to the same place that, you know, the mission, the, you know, whatever the task is, the goal, but I got there a different way than you, but it doesn't make it wrong. Uh, but I found that didn't actually work. And I had to adapt to that field training officer's way of doing things. And well, so that sort of tells you, uh, the backwardsness of yeah law enforcement at times. Right. And, and, you know, it's, it is one of those fundamental lessons and we just gave examples of that. I could give you an example. Uh, so a preference is the style and the manner in which you do it. It's your choice. It's your kind of jam. Right. And the pref the principle being that unyielding truth or standards. So, and sometimes we have those shifts, just like you talked about. Uh, I had one where I always put the knives loading the dishwasher, the knife, the pointy part was up. Uh, I did that for a long time, right? The, the principle is that the items in the dishwasher are loaded. They are cleaned and sanitized for the next person to use. The preference is kind of how you load the dishwasher, right? Until I met with one of my sergeants and he told me the story. I'm like, hey, so tell me about you. Tell me something most people don't know. And he said, you know, when I was 18 months old, my mom was loading the dishwasher. And he said, I was just a little dude and the dishwasher was open and the bottom bottom shelf was out and she was loading the cutlery and she had the knives in sticking up. And he said he fell and the knife went into his chest as an 18 month old baby. Stop he said, it. my mom, no, I'm not going to stop it because it's true. <sighs> and so she, he said, she loaded me up, got me to the hospital. He had surgery, successful. But every time I load the damn dishwasher now, I think of him. And what do I do? I don't put the pointy part up. I go, whoop, whoop. Wow. You know what? And so, that is what they say is true wisdom, learning from others' mistakes versus making your own mistakes. Wisdom is when you don't, when you can learn what not to do from someone else. So ah, the essence mm. of what our podcast is about. Yeah. Isn't it? That what was beautiful. Thinking, Ted? Well, I've had kids for 10 years now and I points down and I tell, even tell my wife and she doesn't do it as much as I do, but the sharp knives go in the furthest back part of the silverware container, all You're that heroic. stuff, you know, yeah. the cleaning. You're heroic. <laughs> yeah, we just saved four little Madden lives. I mean, totally. I'm trying. directing your wife to do it your way, Ted saves lives. Well, there's sometimes tell, there is only one Katie right that. way to do it. <laughs> and this yeah, is one of those favor, times. Do me a favor, pass that on to your wife. Is Listen, Still told me that my way is the right way. So Maybe, this, yeah. maybe I'll finally get her to listen to a podcast if she knows I'm bagging <laughs> on her a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> tell her to do it. 
So we're doing something a little different today, friends, and that we did not invite a guest on because the truth is we haven't talked to one another for a hot minute. And so we just decided that we would catch up with one another, right? And just figure out what we're doing. And, you know, as Sil would say, tell me everything. So I'm going to ask you, Sil, uh, there's, we, well, we know that you've started a new job. I don't know if everyone else has. Um, so why don't you share what new position you have? And then my question is, and you can go right into it because I've worked in the Aurora Police Department since I was 17 years yeah. old until I retired 30 years later. And so I didn't go to another organization, another agency. So I'm enamored by those who, especially even in the same profession, but go into a brand new organization. And of course, people outside of policing do this all the time. But, you know, tell me your experience in, in doing that. You know? Sure. I, I think it was remarkable. I had no intention of coming back and putting on a uniform uh, back in full-time policing, law enforcement, but I was compelled to do so by a, a sheriff in Northern California. And, and here's the deal. Uh, I have a lot of energy, a lot of desire to actually prepare people, to develop individuals, to really work in in this time and space when a lot of people, I think I'm one of seven police chiefs who retired and did not move to Idaho. I think there's seven. But you know, you get the point. Um, but you know, this sheriff, I believe in him. I believe in what he is doing. And I said, we had a lot of engagement. So this is kind of how it goes, right? I said, look, I want to be a workhorse, not a show horse. I mm. was a chief for 11 years in three agencies, really blessed to do that work. And I have the uh, heart and soul of a graveyard patrol cop, but with the kind of intellect and wisdom of being an executive for over a decade. And so using that kind of heart and soul and head combo, I'm able to serve here. And I won't do I have to specifically say where here is? I don't think that's really germane. I could say that I'm in a sheriff's department where I serve as the undersheriff. And what the heck does an undersheriff do? An undersheriff runs the organization. And so I get to influence strategy and policy, culture, climate, fall in a grenade uh, when necessary to speak truth, to stand in the gap. And so how did I do that transition? I could say that I relied on my experience in the Sacramento Police Department, where you picked up in one command and moved to another. And how do you do that? You listen to people. Don't think you have all the answers. And so what I'm doing here is I'm really meeting one-to-one -one with people and then meeting with units and divisions broadly to hear from where they serve, the individuals serve, whether it's in a cubicle, in, a, in an evidence lab, in the coroner's office, in custody, in courts, in field operations, investigations, really hearing from people about how it feels and how it looks to serve in the sheriff's office. And then I get to really influence in a, in a positive way, help people prepare for the rigors of the work, to develop them individually, to increase my individual capacity for taking the heat that will then permeate the organization. That's not just something we say or we read in Marty Linsky's book, <laughs> but something that we do, we yeah. demonstrate. And I think the big, a big, big, thing was we just finished a team building and uh, what folks reported to me was they have not heard me say in like if you went 
somewhere else. In Aurora, we did this. I don't say in Sacramento, we did this, mm. or in Tempe, we did this, or in Napa, we did this. Um, in El Cerrito, we did this. I don't say that. Uh, I really say, well, there are some agencies that have mm-hmm. uh, experienced this, this, or this, and this is what they found. Yeah. And That's so, the quickest way to lose credibility is to walk in and say, this is how we did it. Okay, but wait, I have a question. Yeah. Um, so... I'll call on you. Miss. Yes, call on me. Uh, so you said that you're going to sit down or you have, you're in the process yeah. of sitting down with everyone. Uh, so when, and you say I'm gathering information. So here's yeah. what I want to know, because I, I think that it is safe to say that in every single organization, there are hollow bunnies. There are, you mentioned when you said, you know, show horse versus workhorse, right? A show horse is, is a hollow bunny. Uh, and so how do you sift the grain from the chaff? How do you, how do you recognize, is it that kind of instinct that we have for human nature to understand, okay, this person's a hollow bunny, uh, or do you kind of get feedback from everyone collectively? And then the hollow bunnies are kind of mentioned and they surface through, you know, other people's, you know, input. So how do you determine who are the people that you trust when you walk in and you don't know anyone? What, here's two things, the two biggies. My mom said, Sylvia, you don't have to speak to your values, your behaviors are on full display for everyone. They demonstrate your values, right? That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So I'm an observer of people. Mm-hmm. And when they're before me or out in the environment, I observe people. So there's mm-hmm. some instinct there. Uh, the other cool thing about coming in from the outside is every single human being that serves in the organization has the power of redemption. Mm-hmm. Oh. I don't know what they did as a rookie. I don't know where they made a mistake. So the power of redemption the humility to understand that they get a do-over with me uh, is a big deal. And I got to say, Kristen, you know, Ted knows in a hierarchy in policing, officer, detective, sergeant, lieutenant, commander or captain, uh, assistant chief, chief, right? Or deputy and on in a sheriff's organization. Here's the thing. Each step we take we give up a little bit more of ourselves to serve the organization. So you serve the unit, then the division. Uh, By the time you reach chief, there's literally nothing that we do that is about us. It is entirely about the organization. Well, it should be. If you're good, it should be. If if, if you're not the hollow bunny, it should be that. If you're a solid bunny that really understands the human necessity of leading people and, and I got to say, living by the four agreements, mm-hmm. right? And we should talk about these four agreements in a hot minute. Uh, when you are really serving people to in, in policing to then go out and serve and safeguard people, the leadership imperative is that you act in a way that serves the entire organization. So coming in from the outside, uh, use my instinct and also use... I think the power of discernment mm-hmm. and power of redemption. Yeah, that's Everything. important. I wrote down a question while you were talking and you mentioned redemption. I had written down this question, are hollow bunnies redeemable? Mm. Now, 
we're talking about like it's one thing to make a mistake as a rookie and you can find redemption after that. But what is what mm-hmm. makes you a hollow bunny if you are one? Partly because you can't be redeemed from that. I I think everybody is redeemable. I mean, I I believe that's what we. Uh, it, it's so interesting that in talking about this is that when still said redemption, when I became chief, you know, I called it the reset button. I don't care what your past has been. I don't care, you know, what, what black cloud has been over you or who put their thumb on you. All of that is gone. And everybody starts with a fresh slate, right? Now there are some people that just can't seem to fill their body no matter what, right? Like, you know, but you don't give up on on people and especially in our organization. Now I learned, of course, you know, to listen to the majority that we're, you know, doing great work and not the malcontents. But I believe that everyone has an opportunity for a second chance. And that even goes to those who, you know, we've had to put handcuffs on and take away, you know, freedoms. You know, everyone deserves a check, a second chance. And uh, so I believe, yes, absolutely. I think some people can't get out of their own way. Uh, but man, there there are those kind of leaders out there, though, that truly, if you, you know, if you fail, you now are a failure. And that follows you. And that is such an incorrect way of leading people. I think we all make mistakes, right? Yeah. And that, that's what distinguishes you, Kristen, because it takes a big person to do that, to have that reset. And then this leadership necessity of you can fail, but you as a human being are not a failure. That's a big, big deal. I have a guy that worked for me and Ted, it's going to make your skirt fly up because I'm about to um, do the sports. <laughs> analogy. Hold on yourself there, Ted. I had a guy, I swear to you, he was a guy that I said, he hits a triple and then gets picked off third. Mm -hmm. He was that guy. And for Miss non-sporty ball, Mm -hmm. what that means is he gets a really good hit, hits it in the gap. It's a baseball. They hit it with a big wood stick. Mm -hmm. Or or metal or metal, right? Oh, well, in, the in pros, college and really, below. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. In the pros, so, they have to use wood. Yeah, just go with us okay. on this. Okay. They hit the ball. It goes between two men because we're talking baseball. And usually they go to one base and then they go to another. And if they're really fast and they want to push the envelope, they go to the third base, right? Or they yeah, I, I, know, I know third base. I'm standing on third. So everybody's like, way to go, dude. That was awesome. Mm-hmm. Then... He takes too far a lead. He's not paying attention. He gets cocky and he gets picked off third. When you now, say picked off, uh, what would you mean? Like he tries to run to home and then he gets taken out? Like, is that what you like mean? Picked a, off. You can take a lead off, which is basically giving you a head start to the next base. Okay. Okay. If okay, you're standing on the base, you're safe and they can't get you out. But you take a yeah. lead off, you're getting that head start and the pitcher can throw to that base and pick you off. Okay, I I knew that. I just didn't know it was called picked off. So that that's new to me. Yeah. Okay, okay. Go up on you, mm-hmm. and the people that are listening right now are like, she is so adorable. So uh, yes, yeah. sporty ball. So um, okay, wait. So I don't get it. So what do you mean p- picked off? Then how is that analogy? Triple the clap, but then he either does something stupid, he's not paying attention, or oh. he takes a risk where he's now out and he can't score. And the point is it's a team sport. Yeah. Okay. I feel that. So we celebrate you and then it's like you let the team down. Mm -hmm. Right. So to your question, Ted, and this whole power of redemption, 
there are some people we can keep giving them opportunities. We can keep attempting to develop them. They will still do things that makes them slightly hollow. Mm. Oh, you know what? So I was just listening uh, the other day to a podcast called The Diary of a CEO. And the R's, but okay. <laughs> it's definitely, I, I think he actually really does have millions of listeners like we proclaim to have. <laughs> so I think he's actually legit. But I loved this, uh, this concept. He had a guest on and he asked the guest, when do you give up? on someone in a Ooh. relationship, in a family, someone who can't get out of their own way, who keeps getting picked off mm -hmm. on that triple, right? So do you give up on, on someone? And I loved, loved the answer. They said, you never give up, but there does come a time because relationships, organizations, they're a team sport friendships, all of the ships. It's a team sport. And so there is going to come a time when you keep throwing that individual the pass and they're just, they're not there for it. They're, they're not open. They're not making themselves open. And there will come a time where you just stop passing the ball to them. But if ever they want, you know, to pass it to you, you have to stay open. So you can't ever close that door. So it's a quasi sports analogy, but I loved that because there, there are people that we just, we can't just keep trying to pass the ball to them because they just, especially in relationships, if it's, if it's give, 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 and, you know, or take, take, take that there's gotta be some point in time where you just stop passing the ball, you know? Right. And I don't disagree with that. I think some of this goes back to their commitment to the greater good. The other part is resilience, right? The capacity to recover quickly from difficulties and toughness. Some people uh, just, throw their sucker in the dirt, stomp off the playground. Yep. Repeatedly. Yeah. And so diagnosing why they can't catch the ball in your mm. kind of analogy, diagnosing that and working to empower that person, training, skill building, which is skill building, development and education is developing the person. So training skills, education, developing them. If the efforts to train and and educate the individual doesn't result in some kind of improvement. They're either not up to the task or perhaps they're not resilient enough to suffer or pardon me, to be resilient and bounce back from dropping the pass or whatever got them there. Right. Mm -hmm. So that comes down to, you know, is it, are you incompetent or are you unwilling to build the skills? Right. Like, is there not, is the competency not there? Um, yeah. Because a lot of times we find that once, you know, extra training, skill building that we can give to individuals to get them to where they need to be. But there, there are times when the person just has, just doesn't have the capacity for whatever reason. I think that's what Sylvia is talking about with the triple, right? You obviously have the capacity you're good enough to hit one in the gap and hit a triple. And it's just about, I guess, capacity with consistency. Mm, yeah. Oh, preach, Ted, because, because ultimately we're applauding the talent. The person has the talent, right? Mm -hmm. They got but then it. There's a gap for them to actually contribute to the team broadly. There's, I learned long ago in field training officer school, there's three reasons that people fail. One is they don't have the skill to do it right? Mm -hmm. They don't know how to do it. So you teach them, you train them, you create an education opportunity. So then they under, they'll have an understanding. The second one is they know what to do, um, but they just don't have an opportunity to demonstrate their ability to do it, right? So you give them those opportunities through scenarios or 
whatever. The third is the most deadly. They know what to do. They have the skill to do it. They just don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's where the attitude and the self-esteem and those things come in, that there's a different leadership insertion at that point for uh, the skill building and the education of the individual. And so I think there's a real leadership responsibility for us to identify, okay, is this a hollow bunny? Is this a person that needs training? Do they need uh, education or do they need uh, some kind of psychological tune-up? That is the hardest for me over the years, especially in leadership positions, to, to have people on our team that have a high level of competency and expertise and have an unwillingness to work with others, those people that don't play well in the sandbox. And I will tell you what, I will take someone that has less skills, but that has um, the aptitude for attitude, you know, and and to try and that resilience. I'll take them uh, 10 out of 10 times versus the highly skilled, highly competent person with the attitude problem. Yeah, it kind of goes back to Southwest Bob and Southwest happy Bob. people, right? Yeah. You're yeah. talking about how he hires people. What were you going to say, Ted? Well, we, we, t- we were talking about your organization and and you are in charge of running the entire organization. How big is it? For people like me who don't know, I think it's good to get a, a number or a general sense of how many people are you? It's a really of? small, it's a small county by all accounts, about 400 folks. But okay. it's in Northern California with a whole bunch of um, man-made and natural threats, right? Because we have the Pacific Ocean and the Bay and hills and really awesome, awesome place to be. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So you mentioned resilience. Um, uh, I'm going to switch the beat here, beat change. Uh, so resilience in running, I don't know, the Chicago Marathon. Uh, <laughs> so for those of yeah. you who don't know, Syl ran that marathon. What? What? And you should wear your medal every day. I would wear that every day, make it into a belt buckle. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I happen to know that in the middle of it, your running partner, Maria uh, was, you guys, she was struggling. I know she told me so. And there's that point in time that, you know, you feel like your body is giving out, which is perfectly normal. Uh, So walk us through that, what your thought process was and how you continued to go through it, because it's something that I've never run that far. The furthest I've ever ran, I think is like a, I don't know, 10K or something. So I don't even know if I had that in me, but what is that mindset? What were you thinking in the middle of it? Well, I got to tell you, start with, I'm not a runner. I, I kind of do it for charity and for feeling kind of badass and for the shirt. Mm-hmm. T-shirt. Right? Ditto. So, uh, you know, we hit, she's gotten me through a bunch of life and a bunch of races, right? So this was just my turn to get her through it. And mile 16, she looked at me and she said, this needs to be over <laughs> now. Yeah. Because she had no business running. She was so sick, but fit as mm-hmm. hell, but really sick. Yeah. But on that day of the race, she was sick, right? Yeah. So she said, this needs to be over now. And I said, huh, we're mile 16. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Think, that. I think I may have punched no. you in the throat. I may have punched you. She, you may have punched me in the throat. Let's She's talk trying. about that. Yeah, but I'm like, so let's talk about that. She goes, seriously? I said, yeah. So as we assessed this, so we started doing kind of a body scan, right? And, and I said, you know what, Maria, 
there are millions of people that can't do this. Mm. We are running to raise money for Alzheimer's. We're running for people that can't do this. We're running for something bigger than ourselves. I said, this has been our life, doing stuff that's bigger than ourselves. And so what we did was we just tapped into the difficulty and the toughness. I really, I, I did a dig down into, okay, so the 10% happier mm -hmm. app has this, Jeff Warren is my guru. He's my, uh, my he completes me. And he has a, a running meditation. It's called Chief Moyer's Running Meditation. And where he really taught me and taught hundreds of people, thousands probably, millions, to really do a body scan and to just notice, and this is the big piece that's kind of this life lesson, but it was really important that day. I said, Maria, let's just notice what we're feeling. Mm -hmm. Notice it, breathe it in and say, thank you and let it go. And that's really, uh, and that coupled with, I said, I freaking love you and I will never leave you. Mm, ever. No one gets left behind. No, no way I'm leaving you. I don't care if I have to give you a piggyback. We have to, whatever's going to happen, we're going to cross that finish line together. They could close down the race course and it's all, we're way over time, but we're going to do it together. Start together, run together, finish together. And so tapping into a bunch of things. One, my love for another human. Mm -hmm. The commitment to another human being. To notice what came up and say, okay, this shit's hard. Otherwise, everybody would do it. Yep. And now let's get through it. And then just saying, I will never leave you. And we're doing this. How blessed are we to be in misery right now? Yeah, Running exactly. 26.2 miles when there are bunches of people that can't. Yep. And some of that, I mean, kind of goes down to you, Ted, right? Or over to you or up to you, wherever you are in the screen that people are watching this or whatever. You had a massive setback uh, recently that you had some surgical intervention, and that really calls on you to fight differently and to have a different appreciation. And I did think about you on that day, Ted, because we've talked about, shoot, you can put on your underwear by yourself now. That's right. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. So... How'd you do it, Ted? How do you get through that? And we've all done it. My struggle was not unique. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I tr I even now try to uh, try to remember how I felt so I can appreciate how I feel now. Wow. And it's hard. Mm -hmm. it you is. can't. Um, you know, you you can explain it to your spouse how you're back. In, unless you are feeling it in that moment, you don't know. And. So I can just appreciate that I am basically better now. Uh, and knowing that, I, you know, in fact, there's a guy, uh, one of our girls are on the same softball team and he comes limping to the game and he's basically looking like I did four months ago. Dang and it. he's going through the same thing. And on the way out to the parking lot, he had to stop and kind of squat down and crouch and just take a minute, which I, which I did a number of times when I had to, when there was a certain distance I had to walk. Um, so I hope he gets it done, but it's, yeah. And it, it just helps you appreciate the little things. And it's good that you were able to tap into something like that on the marathon. You know, what you just said is so human though, is that we, how soon we forget about the pain and suffering that we went mm -hmm. through. Yeah. Look at how many people endure a significant life event, you know, that, that changes them, perhaps a heart attack or something that really calls into, um, 
into question their mortality or into existence. Um, and, and they, for a moment, they change behaviors that could assist them, you know, um, having this new lease on life and then how soon they go back to their old way of doing things instead of appreciating that that was a moment, uh, you know, a test, you know, and even a foreshadow. And yet we go back to, you know, the way that we are doing things because it's it's this human nature in us to forget how we felt in that moment. And that's something that we have to continually tap into in order to build resilience and to become better. So Kristen, you have been traveling a lot and and speaking and not just speaking to speak, but speaking to influence and really influence people and this mass shooter space. How is your talk to us about where you've been and then how's your presentation really evolving given your consistent thirst for knowing what is contemporary in this space? So one of the things that, that I've been doing, well, the thing, major thing that I've been doing since retirement since September is speaking. And, you know, the cool thing about this is that I didn't plan on doing it. I had planned on taking some time off a couple months and finishing my book and being quiet, finding my center, and then deciding what I wanted to do. And I had some cool opportunities, you know, to go back into chiefing, um, even some cool opportunities with uh, the government and Department of Homeland Security. And I opted not to because I kept getting asked to speak. And and I decided mm -hmm. that, that the message and my passion um, and I'll put it this way to you is that, you know, the book that I just finished reading called The Second Mountain um, is about, uh, it's, I think it's written by, the last name is Brooks. And he talks about every one of us in our lives, we climb this, what we call the first mountain, which is metaphoric for uh, ambition. You know, you're busy raising a family or what have you. It's about goal oriented and it's about achieving the summit and success and climbing, climbing. And then you get to a point in life, which is where I'm at right now, where you start on your second mountain. You've reached success, whatever success means to you on your first mountain. And you take the wisdom and experience from the climb on the first mountain and you apply it to a purpose-driven passion. And for me, it's been about mass shooting prevention. Since the mass shooting that I had in my city on February 15th, 2019, where five of my officers were shot and five people were killed, um, that's what set in motion for me uh, really this title that I loathe, you know, subject matter expert on mass shootings. Um, and I wish that I could shed that title, but it's become kind of part of that second mountain for me. And sitting on the International Association of, of Chiefs of Police Mass Violence Advisory Initiative, and now being on the DOJ team that is reviewing the Uvalde massacre, this has become my life's work, my second mountain and that passion. And so I'm going to organizations and I learned very quickly that going to police organizations is great because we have to teach preparation. If you guys think about it, you know, law enforcement is going to show up. Now, of course, we can debate on how they perform when they show up. That's a, a whole other topic. But, but, uh, law enforcement is really reactive. They don't live in the prevention space. So it started to occur to me that the gap that we need to fill uh, is with organizations, with schools, because 
you know, the next mass shooter is living in someone's basement. The next mass shooter is in the cubicle next to you. And so that's what I'm doing. And I'm so blessed to be invited into organizations. I just was in a, a school, a school district. Um, I went to water reclamation plant. They're worried about mass violence. And so I'm going into organizations, but also uh, over the weekend, I had the great fortune of delivering a keynote uh, for a gala called Bank the Blue, and that is about suicide prevention and mental health and wellness for law enforcement, which is another topic very near and dear to my heart. As many people know, my father, a, a police officer, committed suicide later in life, but as a result of the thousand tiny cuts that he incurred. So I'm passionate about that. And then, of course, just leadership in general. So I leave tomorrow for uh, Atlantic City, New Jersey, and then I go from there to New Hampshire, and I will be talking to women's groups about women's empowerment. So I'm kind of like, I, I live in those spaces, but it's a gift that I get to go. I get to, as you said, I get to go uh, because people are inviting me to speak yeah. and I'm going to keep doing it until people tell me to shut up. Can I ask a cynical question? Because I think challenging questions get get the best answers. How much of a difference are you making if somebody's going to go in with an mm -hmm. AR-15 and just shoot up the place? How much work can you do to prevent these things? So we know that there is a pathway to violence. Uh, someone doesn't just wake up one morning and decide to pick up that AR-15 and go shoot. That is the space that I'm living in. And that is what I'm trying to call attention to is that this pathway to violence begins and we often connect the dots backwards after a shooting and we say what? Well, we saw that coming. Oh, everybody knew if anybody was going to shoot up the place, it was going to be that person. And so, so why is it then if we already know, and the answer is, is that there isn't a great culture of reporting. People tend to say, Ooh, but what if I'm wrong? I don't want to report that because what if I unnecessarily put that individual, you know, through something when they really weren't going to do it? Maybe they were just, you know, writing a strongly worded essay about, you know, blowing up a school. And what if they were just venting, right? But that's the problem is then, you know, we sit on this and so many of these scenarios people don't report or uh, or we have the left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing in many of these school situations is that you've got social workers that know know what's happening, but they're not communicating that. And so there is a gap in that information sharing. And so um, I'm going into organizations and telling them how to build a threat matrix where you can triage an individual when they start showing signs and they do. Every single one of these shooters is uh, has exhibits what we call leakage, uh, where they tell someone, whether they post it somewhere, they write an essay, um, or you know, in in the uh, I think it was Sandy Hook, where this the the shooter in that case didn't leave his mom's basement for three months, only communicated with her via email. In, in my profession, we call that a clue, right? And so what personal responsibility do we have as adults, as parents, as teachers, as supervisors, and et cetera, friends? And so that is really what I'm, I'm trying to speak about in these organizations, if that answers the question. Yeah. And you know what, Ted? Uh, Kristen's talking about the pathway to violence. She's also talking about how threat assessment works and they're very distinct stages and research has informed all of that. There's also this human overlay of, oh my gosh, if I say something, then I might be, right? So she's addressing that. 
And I got to stick up for my sister here. Uh, and it's a great question, a great poke and a challenge. I kind of want to punch you in the face. But, uh, but here's the deal. How do we measure what we've prevented? How do we That's tough. measure? And so, so yeah. Hmm. Right? Yeah, part and of so, my presentation is actually uh, uh, it's part of the end of the of the presentation when we talk about prevention. And do you know that there are so many cases that have been thwarted where a shooter, uh, they have truly been, uh, intervention has happened. And you know what, you don't hear about that. And, you know, just a few months ago, there was a woman who overheard a conversation in a coffee shop about a shooting that was going to happen. And she went and told someone and the uh, law, local law enforcement built uh, what we call the triage and the threat assessment. And they built up reasonable suspicion. And ultimately what happened was it led to uh, finding an arsenal of weapons. So they had the means to carry this out. And that leakage, which she overheard, she reported. And because of her reporting it, a, a shooting was thwarted. Now, not one of you have heard about that because right. it doesn't make headlines because it's not sexy to say, hey, guys, today nothing happened. And one of the things I talk about in the presentation is let's take a moment when we've done the preparation, when we've built the threat assessment team, when we have prepared, especially as law enforcement or an organization, hey guys, we had a major event today in our city or in, in, in our organization and nothing bad happened. Let's call that into consciousness and talk about, you know, our preparation has led us to this point and nothing happened. And so let's celebrate those moments. And, but again, it's just, you know, people don't buy into that. That's good news, right? Right. And there's, uh, it's so interesting. One of the most compelling conferences I went to was the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. And wow, wow, wow. These are men and women committed to doing the research, doing the, the academic work, doing the in the ground field operations work, the investigative work, and non-traditional partners. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So much of what was compelling and, and difficult about that was just what you talked about. Listening to the stories of those that someone should have known and didn't speak up. Um, also listening to the courage with from those that can't measure the enormity of the impact that they make. Because sure. something has been thwarted, mitigated, prevented. It's really, really interesting. Yeah, for um, sure. And ideally, you want to get to a point where law enforcement, so law enforcement is the last resort. And that's what, you know, I keep saying is that, you know, for law enforcement to step in, you know, there has to be some sort of egregious act or a threat of, you know, some sort of viable threat, but it's all of the in-between social services. And so when we can identify an individual that may exhibit a propensity to commit violence and then get them the help, see, that's the good part. That's the hopeful part in the silver lining is that kind of like what you said, Ted, about redemption, is that someone going down this road, if if there is an intervention that happens somewhere, you know, in the process, 
they they can absolutely turn that around and they won't then you know carry out their their violent tendencies um but then of course you know if there is no intervention and then you add you know a firearm to it then you know now you have the perfect storm right. so so the idea is to intervene early on with social service agencies um and even just this and this is basic humanity is you know you think about you know the starfish parable you know is you know throwing the starfish back in and saving them and someone says well you know man you'll be here all day if you try to save you know all of these these starfish right but it matters to the one that you save and and every once in a while there is someone uh, that will step up and 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 truly make a difference just from human kindness, right? Someone who's been bullied that is having manifestations of shooting up their school and someone steps in and shows them genuine and sincere kindness. And we've heard stories of that has been enough to just turn, turn it around for them. So it, we all have a personal responsibility, I guess, is my point. Well, you said yeah, it too. all this talk, all this, all these different times you've go, gone and spoken. If you've saved one person, You've done the job. That's what I mean. And so that's why I'm going to keep doing it until, mm -hmm. and, and, and then we don't know, right? We just don't know what success stories we have, but we keep doing it anyway. And that's what I mean. I, I, I have found that this has become my second mountain and I'm, I'm going to keep doing it till someone pushes no me doubt. up the mountain. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And, and the intervention place, what are the stages implement or ideation, planning, preparation and then uh, implementation, right? Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of places where someone could insert themselves in that that threat assessment. And you know what? You may just be the spark that gets someone to recognize behavior um, differently. Yeah. Bravo. I hope Bravo. So. Thanks. And That's... and you know you are you are sacrificing in order to do that. No doubt. You're sacrificing your time. You it's stressful. Even as skilled a speaker as you are, there's a lot that goes into preparing and being present on that day and noticing what comes up and really adjusting to the the crowd, the the group. There's a lot that goes into it. And travel is not easy. Yeah, that's true. And it is. It's ultimately, I was just talking to someone who is in the speaking business because now it's like I ventured into this business, right? That I never mm -hmm. thought I would be in. And and it truly is, is. Think about how many competent people that you know that know their their stuff, but they can't communicate it well, right? We know a lot of people like that. If you put them in front of people, they can't articulate and so it is part, it's a performance. And so I'm trying to not only build my skills in the deliverables and what the audience needs to hear from me and take away uh, so that they can not only be inspired by it, but then to create action, right? Because I believe that knowledge without application is nothing. How many times do we sit around and we're inspired by a book we've read or a speaker we've listened to and we intend to do something or change something in our lives, but we don't. And so for me, a, the true value is when people leave my presentation and not only are they inspired, but then now they take action, um, you know, sure. to whatever, whatever the topic is I'm, I'm speaking on. So that's always my end in mind. I always leave um, and I ask myself before I speak is what do I want the audience to think to know, to feel, and to do. And right. do is the most important part is that I can make them feel, but in, unless they do something or change something, yeah. um, start something or stop something. So it is, there's a lot that goes into it, but I have to say, I, I absolutely 
love it. I, I, the, the travel gets to be a lot, although I just made platinum pro on American airlines. Um, so, (laughs) um, so I feel super stoked about that, but, um, (laughs) but yeah, um, you know, I'm living on an airplane, I'm living in a hotel, but it's, but it's back to what you said, Syl, is I get, I get to do it. So it's a gift and I will never complain. Right. And I mean, that's kind of like the, the army said, be no do. I like, here's what, so what, now what? And so you are giving them, here's what, you're giving them a so what, here's why you should care about it, and now what? And it's that call to action that you're giving them. So if we are really giving our listeners a do here, we're we're saying do distinguish between preference and principle. Know your style, but really communicate the principle, right? From earlier in this podcast, we're talking about resilience, right? We talked about the Chicago Marathon. Okay, example, when shit gets hard, you step up, you dig deep, you say, I get to do this. I feel this suffering and thank you. And you build that resilience. You dive into what helps you rebound through toughness and you find a way to carry on. We... You're also saying, look, there is a pathway to violence. They can identify their role in this pathway to violence and find a way to do something about it, right? Were were there others that I missed in terms of do from this podcast? No, that's a great way to encapsulate it. And that's, it's just also bringing awareness and empowering people to yeah. step up and to say something. And that's, that's where action is. Um, you know, speaking of um, action, you know, Ted made the comment, um, I'm totally switching gears here <laughs> to, get, to get the focus off me. Beat change. Beat change, as, as Jake Zeman would say, beat change. Um, so Ted mentioned uh, that he wanted to become proficient at TikTok. And I just want to give a, the brother a shout out because Ted, your videos, you have stepped Ooh. up. I don't know. So have you checked out his videos lately? He's got his kids, like they are casted. I mean, they are like, check out his videos. If, if okay. you don't, if you don't follow Ted yeah. Madden, check out his videos. There are a lot about sporty ball. So I try really hard to okay. follow, but Ted, I just want to give you a shout out. One. I saw a diving one, but I don't have TikTok. Did I see it on Instagram? Does that probably, kind of- probably Instagram and Facebook is where I paste post a lot of that stuff. Um, so do but, you think we need to be on TikTok? Like, do you feel the need no, to be on well, TikTok? Because I, I feel I, like I, I do. I, well, I feel the need directly from my manager, who is the director of communications for the school district. And she she's my age, too. So she, it's not like she's some 25-year-old mm-hmm. who knows about TikTok. But she she likes it. She enjoys it. And she thinks that's a way to you know, reach the students, the young people. Mm-hmm. Huh. I don't I like it. I see videos of people eating. Like yeah. they just sit there and eat cereal and something's happening. I, I don't. I, it's, you know, I, and, and what she told me and I haven't, I just don't need to consume another social media. I mean, I'm trying to, what I, what I like about it is as a video producer, it is forcing me to think about a different medium and a different way okay. to create a, just a soundbite video, mm-hmm. like awesome. 20 or 30 seconds, as opposed to what I'm really good at is like a three and a half minute mini documentary with our hall of honor videos that I do for the school district. That's my wheelhouse yeah. and learning how to, well, for one, to, to shoot vertically is so, <laughs> I mean, the TV is, is up on the screen like this. You don't shoot <laughs> video like that because the t- but now people consume their video like that. And I've got to mm-hmm. accept that and realize, okay, that's how people consume their video. 
And, and so I'm, so I'm trying to shoot and think, and it does, it forces me to think, it challenges me and I, and I come up with some fun huh. things, but it does, it takes a little piece of the, my soul with it when I, when yeah. I do one of these things. So I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm enamored by, by TikTok. And I think what I'm enamored by is the creativity on TikTok and I want to learn how to do it. And I know I just have to drill down, but you said something that I loved. Um, I was also listening to another podcast and Maria Forleo, uh, I think that's her name. Um, she was a guest on it and she was saying that in these platforms, right, is that we have a tendency to just consume, to consume, right? You go down a rabbit hole. When I go on TikTok, like 500 dog videos later, um, I am like, what did I just do with 45 minutes of my yeah. time? And so there's a space for that in your life where you can just Ooh. kind of mindless do that. But what I loved what she said is we need to make it a point um, to create before we consume. And every morning when I wake up, I grab my phone and I start to consume and I have stopped doing that. Instead, the first thing I do is I check my aura ring on my app to make, you know, see how I slept and to check my sleep score because I think sleep is a superpower. And then I literally set my phone down. I do not open Facebook. Insta, Twitter, I don't open anything. I go right to my computer and I start writing and I start creating. And then mm -hmm. later I give myself time to consume. So you use the word consume and it popped into my mind, but we need to be doing more of that. Put more stuff out into the world instead of just mindlessly consuming Ooh. it. So I love it. Totally agree. I have this really cool piece of art that is a samurai on top of a lobster and there's newspaper and there's all this stuff. And it's really the metaphor of consumption. It is that in, in our society, we consume and we don't do that creative stuff that you're talking about. There's a real challenge there to create before you consume. Human beings are consumers and producers of waste. I mean, isn't that the instant command stuff, right? Yeah. And so you bring a really good point. I think um, I think we have some meaty stuff here, Ted, and the, the hollow bunny is really about consuming something of substance. And so the call to action here, just as I launch over to Kristen Zeman to do our close, our, our real call to action for listeners is, is, is to take a bite, mm -hmm. to challenge what you are consuming, to mm -hmm. contribute differently. And what other kind of uh, pieces can we give people besides take a nibble, try something new, and maybe try this creativity before consumption? What do you think, Kristen? I think so. I mean, I think we could absolutely make an exception for people who want to consume our podcasts, though, before they create yeah. something. I will I will absolutely make an, an, <laughs> an I, I'm just saying I'll make an exception. So um, so today was great. We learned <laughs> so sometimes many, so sometimes many. consumption can lead to creativity. So That's if they consume true. our podcast first, yes. Oh, yes. it might consume. inspire them to be creative. Yes, I, I think you're right. So <laughs> great, great convo today. And so I, I just want to thank all of our millions of listeners and uh, remind everyone that if you like this podcast, you can subscribe and review it and tell everyone you know about it. And if you don't, just move along. There's nothing more to see here. Our podcast is produced by our very own Ted Madden, and the song you are about to hear is written and performed exclusively for this podcast by my handsome and talented son, Jake Zeman, and his friends, Fabian and Zoe. Peace out, everyone. When you look inside
follow, buddy. Yeah. 